You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, queers, welcome back. Thesis on Joan is a podcast dedicated to amplifying voices from the LGBTQ plus community in the New York performing arts scene and examining the industry from a queer perspective. Join us as we sit down with groundbreaking theater folk from Brooklyn cabaret performers to people backstage and on Broadway. For many queers, theater has been an escape. This podcast looks to have open conversations on where we've come from and where we're heading as a community while queering the canon along the way. Holly, how's it going? Hey, I'm good. Uh, I'm okay. I'm tired, but I'm here. <laughs> yeah. How about you? I'm good. It, it is the, uh, like, even though we're not in school time of year where you're like, I want school to be over. <laughs> feeling, so. <laughs> um, yeah, it's exciting that, you know, things are, like, actually rolling and there's more you know, I, I see like theaters like, oh, we're going to have more information about when tickets are going to go on sale and mm-hmm. opening dates. Maybe that's the next exciting moment for all of us is like being able to book your first ticket to to the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Well, you had a theater experience recently. Yes, Do you want to oh, talk I about did. that? I would love to. <laughs> Guys, I had my return to live theater in my hometown of Warren, Ohio, for my cousin's senior musical of Beauty and the Beast. Boy, I'm sorry it's over. I would tell everyone to get over to Champion High School and check it out. He did <laughs> so well. He played Gaston. This is his his final performance in high school. Um, he's had a great career, though. He was Teen Angel in um, Greece and the... Wow. Yeah, the the preacher in Footloose. So a lot of, <laughs> yeah, a varied list of characters. But it was just so great to see, like, theater kids being theater kids in spite of, like, all the terrible crap that's been thrown their way over the past year, year and a half, you know? And they mm-hmm. were just, like, so excited and, like, you know, giving their theater director flowers and crying and going to Olive <laughs> Garden, you know, just, like, all the things yeah. that Midwest theater kids do and yeah, so I was like, oh, this gives me, like, hope that this has all been able to persevere through all the crappiness <laughs> of the last year. Oh, that so sounds good. amazing. Yeah, and the Beast sucks. <laughs> Wait, I sent you that slideshow about how Belle should be with Gaston, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. The Beast is terrible. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, that's a further discussion for another yeah. time. <laughs> but yeah. Oh. 
Yay, theater. Yay, theater. We saw some theater from Split Bridges, uh, Peggy Shaw and Lois Weaver uh, in their show Last Gasp. So Last Gasp WFH looks for ways we might catch our breath in these times of global uncertainty, considering our last acts, whether personal, political, or environmental, written and performed by Peggy Shaw and Lois Weaver of Split Bridges and created in collaboration with Now Nagai, Vivian Stoll, and Morgan Thorson. Last Gasp WFH is a series of verbal and physical essays that playfully dances through the dangerous intersections of performance and impermanence, interdependence and care, knowledge and experience, narcissism and echoes. This was like a very uh, formatically like very different than any other digital theater that I've consumed over the past year. I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds I studied. Uh, Suzuki theater in college and it reminds me a lot of um, like movement work and like how movement accentuates text um, and things that aren't really linear um, that kind of theater which I hadn't experienced in a while but it was fun to revisit and I feel like these two performers in Split Bridges have such like uh, a history a queer like uh, you know, they created so much possibility for queer artists. Um, you know, I I was reading more about them because I was like, oh, you know, I should read up on my history. And I didn't realize they founded the Wow Cafe in New York City, mm-hmm. um, which is this incredible free theater space to artists um, that you, you know, it's kind of like a co-op where you have to volunteer and work other people's shows before you can use the space. And then, you know, other folks work for your shows. Yeah, I remember um, Lisa Crone talking about uh, Peggy Shaw's advice to her when traveling Europe, how you basically have to, like, steal food <laughs> to like, get by and perform shows. It was so cool to see these two artists, like, creating something new. And I don't know if you watched the talk back, but Peggy Shaw is claiming this is her last show. But we'll... yeah. I don't know if that's true. She said it was her last show, but not her last movie. (laughs) Right. Which I'm I'm down for more movies from these two. It's really cool. Yeah. And I really appreciated that through the show. Like, um, so Peggy throughout the show, um, she talks about having a stroke and she's now older and she like has a hard time memorizing lines. And so you see her through the show, like wearing headphones and like hear someone else feeding her her lines um Mm -hmm. and it was it was like a cool like they played with that device too uh which was really fun and it was also just so compelling yeah (laughs) and like how she kept getting closer to like Lois like as the lines were being read and oh yeah that was I, I will say this show took me a couple minutes to like warm up to it. And, and then once I kind of figured out like how the two existed in the space, I was, I'm like very enamored with Peggy Shaw. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I could listen to her talk about anything for hours on end. Um, and she kind of does in this show. It, it It's all very like snippets, you know, put together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of different sections. Um, they a lot of them are named like how to, uh, you know, recognize a narcissist, how to set a table in emergency, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of my favorite ones was um, the how the Trump in me. 
Yes. Yeah. Like Peggy laying horizontally under a table that Lois has just set with a this like yellow tarp um, and going through all like the comparisons to herself and Trump. Yeah. And it starts like really superficially and then gets like progressively deeper and real. And I'm like, Oh yeah, all those things <laughs> are, are can be true about us too. And I especially appreciated her, the overdose of righteousness and her talking about how um, her upbringing and her family like instilled in her this feeling that she's always right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is also very Trumpian. Um, but I'm like, yeah, who doesn't think they're right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was very like, not something you expect a very liberal artist to do, compare themselves to Trump. And and when she was talking about her upbringing too, there was that line that was, I always thought I had something called luck. You know, she's told all these stories about how lucky she is. And she's like, now I know that's something called privilege. And doesn't really like elaborate on that, just kind of leaves it there. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I really, in, I really appreciated the um, monologue that included her, I guess talking or watching performances with younger queers Hmm. and she's talking about how she's like becoming ashamed of the words that she uses to describe herself which I thought was really fascinating and um, how she's she said she's a 75 year old and she's found herself on the wrong side of the table and Hmm. I'm just like how with the history that these two have and the way that they are both perceived in the community and perceive the community, it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about them as like queer elders, but also maybe trying to unravel and figure out their place just as much as, as we all are. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about what Kit and Melissa were saying about like our responsibility to our elders watching this and like when there are those moments where there's like tension around language or labels or identities, like how do we have that conversation and respect like all the work that they've done to get us where we are today. Right. Cause we Mm -hmm. wouldn't have, you know, dicks in place. We wouldn't have all these queer theater makers. um, If, if folks like them weren't paving the way before us. Yeah. They're just, they're they're a force in nature for sure. I I couldn't do that, and I'm not 75. So, <laughs> <laughs> and did you see um or did you hear what they they talked about the house in the talkback? Because the house is just as much a character in this show as these two are, and they were basically stranded in London, and someone was about to renovate this house, and they just let them have it for like a month to live in and perform in. Oh wow. Yeah, and so now the house, they were talking about, like, how transient this show is. Even though it's on film, you know, they're not there anymore, and the house has since been remodeled. So, like, that space doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And, like, when they left it was when it kind of all, like, got demolished and reconstructed. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I I saw in the credits they said that they, like, um, re- recorded this in the first four months of when the pandemic was hitting. And everything was shutting down. I'm like, oh, this does feel like really timely of that moment. Like all these questions, like uh, Lois has that monologue at the beginning of like, oh, what if we didn't know? What if, and she's questioning like, what if we didn't know all these things? And I'm like, oh, yeah, because right. at that time we didn't know anything. And, you know, everything we were um, depending on was really falling apart. Um, 
yeah, so I can see like how those questions would have sat so differently when they were recording it, you know, last summer. Totally. And like, could you have a better title for the show than Last Gasp? Like Mm. two performers doing seemingly maybe one of their last shows, the pandemic happening, like George Floyd's murder. You know, it's just like everything about this was just kind of folding into I, I can't believe they were doing, like, this show seems so perfect for now. I can't believe mm-hmm. it was something they were ready to, like, put up in stage in person before. Yeah, because they had down. written almost all of it before everything mm-hmm. shut down. Wow. Um, I also really love the sense of play in the show and how, like, the movement uh, didn't take itself too seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Like, there were moments when they were kind of mirroring each other and um, Peggy couldn't do one of them. And she kept, like, tapping Lois on the shoulder to, like, get her to help (laughs) or do something. And, um, you know, Lois is just, like, waving her away. And, yeah, it's, like, I feel like that breaks the tension of those moments when it's, like, oh, is this, like, avant-garde theater that's, like, so serious and just like this is art (laughs) oh totally yeah there were so many times where they laughed at themselves especially as it like progressed and Mm -hmm. like you were talking about how peggy couldn't remember all her lines and i think she literally throws in a line it's like you're thinking she can't even remember her lines like (laughs) (laughs) this is really good yeah and they have like a fight moment at the end of the show where you get to see them like do several takes of it and they keep like messing up the lines (laughs) and Mm -hmm. um yeah and all of that is just so funny to watch yeah it made me think of like a whole different genre that probably exists and I haven't paid attention to it but like Oh, this is gonna sound morbid, but like end of life theater, like what, mm. like final, like what's your final work theater? Because um, mm. it felt like that was kind of a conscious attempt with some of this, um, mm-hmm. and like being able to have that last say and plan out that last say, and there's even like a whole mm. part about like having the last word, and so. mm-hmm. and I, I think how like I feel like avant garde theater is associated with like young people like fit people um who are like really experimenting and um pushing limits and and this was but also in like the gentlest way Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um yeah it just it kind of like turns what you think avant-garde is on its head as well yeah I just remembered when Peggy's walking around with a bucket on her head. (laughs) (laughs) Another great moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I like, I feel like a bad queer, but I haven't seen a lot of their work before this. And I wondered like, you know, you see them grappling with privilege, with race, like the times when, you know, um, Peggy talks about um, referencing black men in a lot of her comedy um and like she's like you know what responsibility do I have there mm-hmm. um and I wondered like how much she talks about or they both talk about race um in their previous shows besides like just the references um but yeah I wondered if that was like a new thing of them like kind of breaking down their privilege but I'm not uh, I doubt it <laughs> it looks like this is available through through May 31st yeah it is ten dollars to rent and you get to watch it for like three days. So, and it comes with the talk back. Too. Yeah. <laughs> 
So for this week's action of the up, as we're all getting more excited about summer, just wanted to throw out um, another option as you're considering uh, buying produce this summer. So we'd like to shout out Rocksteady Farm. Rocksteady Farm is a LGBTQIA plus owned and operated cooperative farm rooted in social justice, growing sustainable vegetables in Millerton, New York. I'm just going to read their manifesto here. We believe everyone has the right to high quality produce, food access, and social justice inform our business model. We celebrate our identities and make safer spaces for LGBTQAI plus and BIPOC farmers to thrive. We feel the urgency of our climate crisis and strive to steward our land with sustainable, regenerative agriculture practices. So some ways that you can um, support and get involved with Rocksteady Farm or supporting BIPOC farmers, you can get a share from Rocksteady Farms. They have pickups at Cowan Lord and the Center, and 50% of their shares every year are solidarity shares. So they use donations and their, their own donations from the farm um, to create these shares for people in need. Um, and you can also donate directly to the farm. You can check out them by visiting rocksteadyfarm.com. And we also wanted to shout out blackfarmersunited.org. This is a collective of New York State farmers, and they're quick about. Our ancestors were enslaved to work this land, and through farming, we have found pathways from oppression to self-reliance and from slavery to sovereignty. So you can become a supporter of uh, blackfarmersunited.org by signing up, entering your email, and finding out um, different ways that you can uh, support the different causes uh, that they're fighting for. And you can also check their super handy map of BIPOC-owned farms in uh, New York State. So next time you want to check out a farm, I encourage you to check blackfarmersunited.org first. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply this week we are so excited to talk to dion mclean freeney as a composer, she has created the shows The Movie Star and The Mammy, The Sugar Hill Sisters, Composer and Lyricist, The Harriet Holland Social Club, Rice and Rocks, Going Home, Movement of Voices, This One Girl's Story, As a Music Director, Black Queen's Screen Test, Turn the Volume Up, Amplifying Black Keys, For Color Girls, Billy Ragamatag and the Shadow Circus, Shrek, Beauty and the Beast, the Fourth Wall, Bring the Beat Back, and she works with the BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop. Well, Dion, we're so excited to have you here with us today. I think you're the first uh, 
musical theater director and composer we've had solo before. So that's really exciting. Um, we usually start with our guests ha- sharing their name, pronouns, and anything you'd like to share about how you identify. Cool. Um, so my name is Dion McLean Freeney. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am also really excited to be here. And you have many roles in musical theater, including composer, lyricist, musical director, arranger, singer. Which of those roles do you most enjoy, or is it a combination of all of them? Um, It's really a combination of all of them. I think as a musical director, you need to have some knowledge of composing and lyric writing because you have to have it make sense for you and then be able to make it make sense for your cast. Um, I also enjoy being an arranger. Um, It gives me a chance to kind of micro compose, if you will, like taking somebody else's music and reinterpreting it. Oh, what if we did this at this point? What if we did this at at, at this point? That's always um, a lot of fun. Um, the singer thing, um, I really only sing for myself for the most part. Um, but, but definitely, you know, still under that, you got to wear all hats thing as a musical director. I I think you need to be able to sing, um, because you ultimately need to know if what you are, what you're demonstrating, what you're teaching, what you're trying to get your company, company to do is, is really singable, um, you, you, I think in new works, uh, it's really important to be able to determine if what the composer intended is really what, um, what should be happening. Uh, and, and so sometimes you need to, you need to sing it, um, and you need to be able to sing it out. Um, and as a creative, obviously I love being a composer lyricist as a storyteller. I love being a composer lyricist, um, you know, after all, what are, what are we doing if we're not telling stories? And um, so I don't know, I can't, I can't quite rank them. Um, <laughs> but but definitely, uh, you know, and I, and I think some of that too, comes from not being able to rank thing. I think some of that too, comes from um, having a, a Caribbean parent and Caribbean parents are really good at teaching their kids to be multitaskers. And, and so we're really used to um, have your hands in a lot of things. And when you have your hands in a lot of things, it means that you have an opportunity to really um, excel in, in multiple things. And that's not to say that everybody's parents don't, don't, don't do that, but there's something in particular um, (laughs) about, about Caribbean parents doing that, doing that to their kids. So, um, so, so yeah, I, I appreciate being able to, to do, to do all the things. And I'm going to ask a question that is like, I love musical theater, but I'm totally ignorant to the process of it being created. Do people (laughs) typically arrange uh, the work of other composers or do composers arrange their, their own work? How, how does that typically happen? So I, I think it depends on, um, I think it depends on how elaborate the work is. Um, So for things that are on Broadway, I am definitely unaware of composers who also arrange their own works. Generally, um, an arranger 
slash orchestrator comes in to arrange the to arrange the songs. And so orchestrators will add horn parts, they'll add drum parts, they'll add um, strings and things and things like that that a composer might not think about as they are creating their work. Um, and so as you kind of as you kind of step down in complexity, um, you you generally have less of a, an, an external hand or an external person's hand rather in in your work. Um, I often think about what what something would sound like um, on a bigger orchestrated level. Like when I start when I start composing, um, I start with a a melody, maybe it's a melody that I plunk out on piano, maybe it's a melody that I'm singing. Um, and then I start thinking about what the feel of the of the song is. Is this a ballad? Is this an up-tempo song? Is this a song that's uh, going to eventually have some dance added to it? Um, is it a period piece? Is this supposed to sound like 70s funk? Is this supposed to sound like 50s doo-wop? Um, and then I start thinking about what it's going to ultimately sound like from from there. Um, now, I have not quite arrived at the place where someone else will be orchestrating or arranging my work. I hope to get to that place. Um, yeah, I mean that would that would that would be awesome. Um, so I guess to go back to your original question, or to sort of restate your original question, make sure that I'm answering it. Um, does a composer typically uh, have somebody else arrange their work. It depends. Does a musical director typically arrange somebody else's work? It also depends. Um, I had the chance as part of my work at uh, as a music director at Middle Collegiate Church to do Jesus Christ Superstar excerpts one year. Wow. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, we did do some new arrangements on, oh, cool. on some of the songs just to, just to give them um, a different sound, a different feel. Um, there was a, we had three different people play Mary Magdalene. One of them was a guy. And so what would it sound like to have a man's voice singing um, I don't know how to love him. And so obviously we rearranged that. Um, so I, I think it, I think it differs and that's really um, not to get too rambly. And I feel like I might be on that way, but Go for um, it. <laughs> um, uh, Ari Lawton Simon, who is a, a, a musical theater writer, you should, you should, um, you should talk to um, said once that, Musical theater is a medium as opposed to a genre. And that just made so mm -hmm. much sense, mm -hmm. right? If you think about um, a medium and what makes up that medium, if you think about painting, right? Um, when you create a painting, you have your paints on a, on a palette. You have your brushes. And then you have your surface that you're going to apply your paint to, whether it is actual canvas or just a canvas. If you're a muralist, that canvas would be a wall. If you're a graffiti artist, um, you're probably not using paints and brushes, but you're probably using spray paint. Um, and so, so you have these materials 
that go into making a piece on this medium and composing arranging is kind of the is kind of the same way what are the materials that you want to use to create the ultimate work that you are that you're trying to create and then you have all these things at your disposal to help you create that that eventual work um so i think it's a i think it's a i think it's a mix of things i think it's a mix of things that's amazing. I've never thought about musical theater that way, but it makes so much sense now that you've said it. Thank you. Harry <laughs> um, Lott and Simon. Awesome. Uh, and and think, also thinking of like people you worked with, collaborators, um, you worked with so many artists like such as Colette Robert and Bill, Bill Wright uh, to help write your musicals. And can you tell us more about the collaborative writing process for you and what makes a good collaboration? Yeah. Um, I think a collaboration, a collaboration is a relationship first and foremost. And so I think you have to think about what it is to be in a relationship and what are the things that make a relationship work? Um, I think everybody would say communication is, is number one. You have to be able to talk to each other. And so you have to agree on how you're going to talk to each other. Um, you also have to agree on what is going to be the best thing for the piece. Um, and you also, I think, have to agree that sometimes you may have one idea and your collaborator may have one idea. And how do you come back to what is going to be the best thing for the piece? Um, you need to have clarity. Collaborators need to know what story it is that they're telling so that everybody is telling the same story. Um, and that's where it goes back to communication. You got to be absolutely as, as open as you possibly can be with your collaborator. Um, talk, talk, talk. If you're looking at resource material, everybody should read the, the same resource material. Um, so that you can come in informed and be able to talk about, again, what the story is that you are trying to tell. I think you also have to agree on how you want to tell the story. Um, again, is this something that you want to use 70s funk to tell the story of? Is this something you want to use hip hop to be able to tell the story of? Is this uh, 80s pop? Is that the, is, is that the right thing? And if, um, and, and I'm using music speak, but what if your collaborator is not someone who speaks music? Then you have to be able to make sure that you can clarify, right? Going back to clarity, you have to make sure that you can clarify what it is that you are, that, that you're saying so that your non-music person, whoever, is on, whoever it is on your team, understands what you're, what you're saying. Um, and I think the same that the the same kind of thing has to follow back to um, to from your from your book writer or librettist to your uh, to your composer. What is the what are the words that you're using? Um, are these words singable? If these words are not singable 
can we come up with something that's going to make them more singable? And similarly, composers, think about what the notes are that you're writing to go with the words. Can you, uh, do you have enough in your musical vocabulary to be able to make the words, make the words work if there's a phrase that like you, you just is, is so important to the piece that it has to remain, that you don't want to break it up, that you, um, it, it, you know, that you don't want to find an alternative way to say. Um, so there's communication, there's clarity, there's agreement on the story that you're telling. There's also flexibility. Like all of that stuff is, is, is flexibility. Um, if you're working with somebody obviously you're in this particular relationship for a reason and um, you should be able to respect what each person is bringing into the collaboration. And you should also be willing to be flexible enough that maybe something that you have put in, you're not going to see later on and be okay with that. Um, and that can be hard sometimes, right? Because artists are are sensitive about their stuff. I think Erica Badu said, we're, we're adults, I think I can cuss. Um, Erica Badu said, I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit, right? And so, um, and, then, and then I know other people, I know writers who are like, well, the words that I put on the page are the words I want you to say. I put them on the page for a reason. Got it. <laughs> right. Um, but also, but also to, to not be so precious about it too, that it's like, we need to lose some of this stuff. We need to, we need to take out this number of measures of music. We need to add in these measures of music. We need like this dialogue to go. We need to add this kind of dialogue, like, like have the, have the flexibility to, uh, to, to roll with it because ultimately what is going to be for the good of the piece? That's the that's the the question that you that you have to be able to answer. It is almost that question is almost as important as what is the story that you are telling? If you if those two things are not in place, then there's a then there's a challenge with your collaboration. Um and 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 I got to give a shout out to the BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theater workshop that um, that I'm a part of on the in the advanced workshop, and I also sit on the the steering committee. Um, one of the great things about that workshop is that from the first year, you learn how to collaborate. Like it is very rare that there will be someone in the workshop who is not ever paired with anybody. From the very first assignment, composers and lyricists are paired. Like you, you enter the workshop either as a composer or as a lyricist. And, and, and that's not to say that a composer can't be a lyricist or that a lyricist can't be a composer, but your focus is generally along those two, along those two lines as a composer, as a lyricist. And so during the course of your time in the workshop, you as a composer will be paired with a lyricist. You're given an assignment to, to write. Um, 
And so you, it, it becomes very obvious as a participant in the workshop, when you're listening to the works being performed and you're evaluating them, it becomes very, very evident if it's a collaboration that has worked or a collaboration that has not quite worked. <laughs> um, and, and you learn how to collaborate and you become really better at it and you learn how to be flexible. Um, and you learn how to communicate. And, and so in the first year, so it's, it's a, it's a two year, it's a two year cycle, right? And so in the first year, you're paired with different people on different assignments, which is great because you learn how to work with different people. Um, and then in the, and, and then in the second year, you're paired with one person and you create, um, uh, what will be a 15 minute musical at the end of that like program year. Wow. And you're working with that same collaborator um, and you present it different and you present at different intervals, uh, different parts of your, different parts of your show. And again, you learn how to collaborate. You work on collaboration. You learn how to work it out. <laughs> I mean, it sounds essential. <laughs> yes. You learn how to work it out because save for disaster, that is the person that you are with for the nine or 10 months, right? That you are working on, on your piece. And that's a huge, that's a huge, huge thing. Like think about um, Rogers and Hammerstein. And all the work that they've created, what kind of what kind of collaborative relationship? Um, and and actually, there is a Richard Rogers book um, that I, I have not had a chance to to fully read, but I'm absolutely fascinated by, and I'm sure um, musical theater heads are are have probably already read it, right? But what kind of um, what kind of collaborative relationship? do you have to be so successful and to create pieces that, that just move along um, in time, no matter how you feel about um, the canon and revivals and who the creators are, like the facts are that these are two white men who have created a whole lot of musical theater and, and, you know, are, are held up as a standard and however you feel about that, right. Still go back to the basics of, this is a collaboration that worked for all the years that it worked. There has to be a why. And so um, that's a very long answer to, um, you know, the question about collaboration and, and, and what makes, and what makes collaboration work. So communication, clarity, flexibility. Um, what is the story that you're trying to tell? And um, what is going to, what is necessary for the good of this piece? No, it's fascinating. Like I feel like there are so few roles in the theater, or maybe no roles, like compared to the collaboration needed between composer, lyricist, book writer. Like it's just, it takes a special type. I don't think I'm that type, and I'm glad that you are. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds very difficult, but challenging. Yeah, challenging, challenging. Right? Because because. When I, you know, language is so important as, as storytellers, um, language is everything. And so, so difficult. If you think of something as being difficult, right, 
it makes the work that much more, that much harder. But if you think of something as a challenge, right, you, how you approach the work will be completely different. Um, it's, it's one thing, you know, it's, it's, um, if you are training for a marathon is because you like running, you have to have some kind of appreciation for, for running. And so you want to, um, go out in whatever the weather is and run however many miles you need to run in order to be able to teach your body how to complete 26.2 miles. And so if you don't have a way to think of that work as pleasant, <laughs> there will be more unpleasant moments than pleasant moments, or the ratio <laughs> of pleasant to unpleasant is going to be, is going to be off and it's going to make, and, it, and it's going to make training for that marathon um, that much, that much harder. So challenging. Yes. Difficult moments. Yeah. But I don't know that I would, I, I don't know. And that's, and that's just me. I don't know that I would, that I would, um, start out with thinking of something as, as difficult because then that, that sort of turns up the pain factor and nobody wants that. <laughs> I'm going to take that wisdom and try to apply it to my life as well. <laughs> Things are challenging, not difficult. That is great advice. <laughs> well, talking a little bit more about the genre of music that you use in your writing, um, your your musical theater writing has been described as drawing from R&B, jazz, gospel, hip hop. Mm -hmm. What genres of music influence you the most when you're composing a piece? Influence me the most? Um Again, I have to go back to what's the story. Um, and sometimes the story will tell me what the genre of music is that I'm going to employ at this moment. But I will, but I will say this, um, that at the end of the day, when we look at popular music, um, it's all influenced by um, traditionally black styles of music, jazz, R&B, gospel, the blues. Um, pop music came out of a blues structure of music. Um, spirituals influenced gospel music. Um, the big choral sounds that you will hear sometimes in musical theater come right from gospel. Like immediately I can think of, um, I can think of the muses in Hercules, <laughs> right? That was a little gospel ensemble. Um, I can think of uh, my absolute all-time favorite piece of musical theater, and that is the Gospel at Colonus, which I, I don't think got nearly enough theater time. Um, but the whole piece is um, is set in a in a black church service, and the Greek chorus is a gospel choir. Um, so you can see 
how uh, uh, hairspray 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 is uh is is 60s is 60s pop 60s r&b right um so it all I, I i think when when i think about my writing again i go back to what's the story that i'm trying to tell but ultimately um as a a practitioner of of black music and having as my musical roots black sacred music like that's the first place that i'm going to come from when it comes to um when it comes to writing a song um i am i am unapologetic about it i am unabashedly a fan of it um i also come from a deeply choral place too and um that the voice is the first the body is the first instrument and so i'm always going to think about the voice as storyteller and so i'm going to write um for singers depending on again the story or the moment in the story Am I writing for one voice? Am I writing for two voices? Am I writing for multiple voices? Am I writing for a big multi-voice sound, a small multi-voice sound? Um, and, and that, again, always comes back to where I came from um, and my musical roots in Black sacred music and how the voice, it all, it all starts with um the voice all it always starts with the starts with the voice yeah thank you for that um there's no shortage of white folks culturally appropriating black artistry in the theater unfortunately um and thank you for that reminder um and and thinking about these these main um types of music that have are the root of your work are there specific composers that have inspired you or influenced you um specific composers yeah so um i also love ballads um i love a good ballad um i am a big fan of believe it or not the great american songbook and so <laughs> i i love a good moon spoon june honeymoon lyric um, <laughs> you know i i i i think there's some really beautiful songs out there and so like if i'm writing a ballad a love song um i think about i think about uh like hoagy carmichael lyrics i think about cole porter lyrics i think about uh billy strayhorn lyrics um but i also i also think about how um, the Berlin's composed melody. Um, and I also, you know, I also think about the, the lush arrangements of Duke Ellington. I think about singers like um, Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan and, and Billy Eckstein um, and, and those amazing voices. Um, I think about, um, uh, again, I'm a huge fan of the the, Amer the Great American Songbook. I think about how clever a lyricist Cole Porter was, like his ability to rhyme, um, not just not just words at the ends of phrases, but words in the middles of of phrases too, and and just how how intentional 
they were. And sometimes I look at those lyrics and I'm like, damn, I wish I, you know, oh, that's such a good lyric. Um, um, but I also, you know, I also think about, um, I, I also, I, again, Moonspoon, June, Honeymoon kind of thing. I think about uh, the song that my wife and I danced to at, at our wedding um, 20 plus years ago. And it was uh, The Very Thought of You. Uh, now, just pause at that title, right? Uh, the Very Thought of You, and I forget to do the little ordinary things that everyone ought to do. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, like what kind of lyric is that? And so I, I want to, I want to write lyrics like that. Um, I'm living in a kind of daydream. I'm, I'm happy as a king and foolish though it may seem to be. That's everything. The mere idea of you, the mere idea of you, the longing here for you you'll never know how slow the moments go that listen to all of that rhyming you'll never know how slow the moments go till i'm near to you mm. uh like wow that's i think those are those are such beautiful words and and now i'm a grown-up like i also i also appreciate like you know a little, a little dirty lyric too, like a little thing, you know, that, that has some, some innuendo underneath it. But, but I think if I'm writing a love song, like a love song is different from a sex song. Like a sex song is a sex song. You know, you're grown up, grown folks things, right? Ta you know, that's there. But, but, but to be able to write a lyric that, that is, is timeless like that, that when you really stop and think about it, the, not just the poetry of the sound, but the but the 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 meaning behind it, and then put like a, an amazing voice to it, um, um, like Sarah Vaughan, timeless, Billy Eckstein, timeless, um, it, you know, it it just I I can't help it, and then um, and then if I shift to like gospel composers, um, I immediately think about Richard Smallwood, who's um, so so. Richard Smallwood has this really strong classical music background, um, and he has married classical music aesthetics with um, with gospel harmonies and 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 ways of singing and obviously sacred lyrics that is it is rich and it is beautiful and and even if you are not religious in in any way you you still will hear and be able to connect with incredible beauty in 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 what he has written um i just read that uh this this song of his that he's probably most famous for called total praise is like 20 years old i think already which is which is amazing that there is a you know that there is a song that we're still talking about 20 years later it's like it's like we're still talking about abc easy as one two three like we're still you know we, we can still talk about that 
um, you know, all these many, all these many years later. And so when I think about composers and I think about composers that have, that, that have influenced me, I think about what is it that they've, what is it they've written and why I still, why it still resonates with me. And so then when I um, create my own works, I want to create things that will resonate with people um, over over time. I want people to still be singing my songs 10, 20, 40, 50 years after they've heard them. That That's what I aspire to. And so if I ever think about an influence, um, the, the, the thing that influences me is, is time and, and timelessness. Pick it up from 1970, put it in 2021. Pick it up from 1940, put it in 2021, right? Is it still, does it, does it still affect you in that same, in that same way? That's, that's what I think about when I think about influential composers. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and I'm sure we're going to be, ha- well, you'll be in that list 50 years from now. As well. I, I, I hope so. <laughs> may, the, may, may God and the universe make it be so. <laughs> and, and thinking about like current composers uh, and current musical theater directors and the theater community, like what kind of representation are you hoping to see in the world of musical theater creators? Yeah, I, I, I am what I've really appreciated um, about the pandemic and, and it is possible to find, um, positive notes in this time. What I've appreciated is that theater has taken, has been forced to take a pause and really look at, um, what has been done and who is doing them? What voices have we heard and what voices can we possibly hear now and and need to hear more of um i i think it's i think it's really important to um to hear youthful voices i think it's important to start taking risks on not the usual suspects um when it comes to theater it's 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 interesting I, a few years ago i went to I went to a preview of um, of what was coming up in this theater season that was created uh, by Black creators, by Black writers. Um, the majority of them were young. Um, they were all off or off, off Broadway. And part of that preview, too, was a, a panel discussion. And on that panel, and, I, and I, I feel terrible because I can't I can't remember any of the names of people who were there, but I remember what was said. And one of the things that they said um, was that Off-Broadway was where Black creatives could get support for taking risks. And, um, and so it really changed for me, the lens of what is making it in theater. Um, that Broadway should be seen as a crown, not the crown, especially if you have kind of the same 
handful of producers who are producing, um, who are willing to put money behind um, shows that they kind of feel like are going to be successes because if you're in the producing game, you're going to put money out and you want to get money back and not just the money back that you put out, but you want to make a profit, right? Because that's business. Um, and so, so revivals are safe bets because you know, they've been, they, there has been uh, success um, with them. And so they're, so they're a safe bet, right? Um, but here's the thing about, about that. There are some really great shows that have been done, but there are also some really great shows that deserve to be seen. And so again, this pause has really turned the spotlight, I think, on newer creators, younger creators, creators that we haven't maybe heard from, creators of color, certainly creators who are who are who are women. Um, we're starting to hear we're starting to hear more voices. Um, and then on the and then on the uh, the back end of that, there are organizations like Muse, which um, which is an organization of uh, musicians and music directors and arrangers and orchestrators um, of black and brown folks and Maestra, that is an organization of uh, female uh, composers and arrangers and songwriters and uh, arrangers and orchestrators and music directors um, and such. Um, there really is now, um, they are moving to the, to the fore. And so now, um, producers and directors no longer have to call like the, uh, the Rolodex of white guys that they <laughs> might've been depending on before to, to fill those jobs. Um, and so that's been a really, that, I, I, that's been a really great thing. And then also, um, uh now they might be problematic so uh, you know not necessarily an endorsement um <laughs> but but we see you white american theater um i think was a was a a, a a jumping off if you will of an institutionalized and i and i say that intentionally because it's not like there weren't black and brown um, folks in, working in theater who weren't like, are we really calling the same 15, 20, 50, whatever <laughs> uh, white guys for the same job? Is this really still happening? Right. Um, it's not like, it's not like those conversations were not being had, but, um, but this institutionalized, this concretized, um, this starting to gel kind of really mass groundswell um, of, of non-white folks working in theater saying, okay, listen, nobody's doing anything now. So you don't have the distraction of that to, um, to keep you from listening to what we're telling you about how theater is functioning or not functioning right now. And, um, and I think I think that's really amazing. I, I I can't wait to see what's what's gonna come out of that. Um and um one of the other things is is that uh blessing or curse, Zoom and and other online platforms have kind of evened the producing playing field. In other words, 
Um, if you had a had a piece that you um, wanted to get out there, and uh, maybe you needed a producer to help you make that happen, well, sign up for Zoom, call your friends, tell their friends to call their friends, and you just you you know you you invite folks to a Zoom reading. You don't have to spend the money to rent a rehearsal room. And, uh, and, and go and do that right. You have, you have ways of like the playing field, um, has, has even, and wow, who, who knew? Is it perfect? No. Um, do you get the same kind of, do you get the same kind of experience that you get being in a room with other people? No. But again, you get a chance to hear the words that you've only seen on a page in other people's mouths. And then uh, those, those words get heard by somebody else, right? Um, they get to live on. If you had a reading in a room and you only had 20 people, literally in a room and you only had 20 people in a room and that reading never went anywhere, those 20 people heard it versus the potential for hundreds or thousands of people to be able to hear it. And then it increases the chance that maybe your, your, your stuff, right. Gets to go out and gets to go and gets to go further. And maybe you'll find a producer that way, maybe in a, you know, in a non, in a non-traditional sense. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to what will come out of, out of this time period, even as I believe that a pause should be taken. Like there's a reason that, that we have to, that we have to stop. Um, you know, God bless the folks who were in Broadway shows, doing eight shows a week. They're dancing full out. They are putting their bodies um, on, on the line, sometimes to the point of, of injury and breakage, um, you know, all for the sake of, of, of telling, telling the story. Um, but it takes a toll and, and even the idea of eight shows a week, that's a lot, right. And, and not having enough time to rest and refresh and to be able to go back to, to be able to go back in, um, maybe not so broken, but having a chance to, to heal and, and to go back. And so there, so there is, there is that as well. Yeah. I think it's like you said, with the jumping off point of, we see white American theater, it's been great to see the other conversations, like the one that's happening with equity now about right. just like, how, how do you survive this? So right. Right. I just hope that people continue to listen and, um, that things will change. Right, right. And survival, again, language, right? There's surviving and there's thriving, right? So survival, survival has bare minimums, right? But thriving means that you go above the minimum, right? Why should we be in a time where um, people who we might never have thought of as, as being important in any way, the dude on the bike, Who's bringing you your food in order for you to stay in the house, which is what you're supposed to do because we're in a quarantine and those are the orders. And this is how we, but you've got that guy on the bike who's bringing you your food, 
right? That person is now an essential worker and there's, and there's like a bare minimum that that person is getting paid, right? In order to survive. But you who has the ability and the resources to have that person bring you that food in the first place, that's about thriving. And so survive versus thrive is another is another thing that we have been forced to 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 think about and i and i i just i just think that's important this is a little bit of a shift but i wanted to go back to (laughs) back to um you already mentioned your involvement with middle church uh and one of the reasons i was so excited to talk to you is i'm a um a member of fort washington so i knew your name was associated with middle church and i've watched the services and stuff Mm -hmm. um but i wanted to just ask can you speak a little bit more about finding queer community in church and how those two sometimes seemingly incompatible worlds can combine Ooh. (laughs) something i ask myself constantly so yeah so I remember um, when I was 17, I heard a gospel song and the chorus was, I'm encouraged to stay with Jesus. I'm encouraged to stay with the Lord. Now, at 17, I was starting to feel um, that something was different about me as opposed to the other girls that um, were in my church. Um, Since I was very, very young, I always felt um, that God was with me. Um, I remember being being really, really young and um, being in bed at night and pulling pulling the covers over my head and um, what I probably know now as uh, the difference between when you see a bright light and then suddenly you turn the lights off and you're in the dark and you kind of see like little twinkles. Um, my four, five, six-year-old self thought those were angels with me. And um, I actually, at way older than that, at this moment in time, um, I still feel like angels are with me. Um, So I came out. um, I didn't tell anybody. I I, I came out to myself first and I, and I actually came out to God first. Right. And I prayed that prayer that pretty much any Christian leaning homosexual has ever prayed. And that was (laughs) um, God, please take this thing away from me. And then, and then when that didn't happen, then the prayer became, um, well, then I guess, God, this is it. You know, I remembered this song. I'm encouraged to stay with Jesus. I'm encouraged to stay with the Lord was the, was what came to me right after I prayed that well, I guess this is it, God, because according to what I I learned, you don't love me anymore. And um, 
And since that time, right, and since that answer to that prayer, I've always held on to um, surely somebody is wrong when they say that God does not love the gay man, God does not love the lesbian, God does not love the bi person, God does not love the trans person, God does not love the the non-binary person. Surely somebody was wrong because we are here, some of us might be surviving and some of us might be thriving, but we're here. And I think about myself, I think about how I've survived surgeries, I've survived accidents, I, I, I have had near misses. Um, I, you know, things that things I I have been in, I have been in situations, um, that I had no business being in and had things been even a little bit different, we would not be having this conversation. And for me, I believe that's because God sent angels to walk with me. And surely if a big old black queer like me <laughs> is the big old black queer woman that I am surely and is here to be able to say that then surely surely God knows and loves me and continues to keep their hand on me continues to be above and below me behind me and in front of me, to my left and to my right. And so if that is true, then surely all the other tiny white trans people, big Asian queers, medium-sized black lesbians like what right like like all of these all of these people surely if we're if if we're all here then we are meant to be here and even when it looks like according to someone else's definition our lives are bad for whatever what however bad is defined right the fact that we are still here has to mean has to mean something and if we are here then for me i feel like my my obligation is to make sure that i let somebody else know however that is right not the you know definitely not the ring the doorbell hi can i talk to you about god like not in that way right <laughs> um but in but but in being and doing and creating and storytelling and living and laughing and 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 loving and teaching and sometimes crying and 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 sometimes uh and sometimes shouting and sometimes being really horrified at the at the state of the world but also um you know living 
Are we are we quoting the L word theme music intentionally? Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> I I didn't. But listen, but 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 God you know, I I do believe right. But I but 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 see, there's theology there too, and 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 God never and and God does not come up in those lyrics, right? But that's still right for me. For me, that might not be your story, and that's cool. That's okay, right? Um, but there's still there is there is. I, I feel like my my call is to is is to be all the things that I am, um, and and hope that somebody is inspired to um, to do that thing that they thought they 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 couldn't do. Um, so middle church's sanctuary burned down in December. Um, but I, I remember, I remember so many moments thinking that when I'm sitting, when I was sitting at the piano and the camera was pointed at us in the front of the sanctuary, uh, for our live stream of worship services. And I, as a woman sat there and I, as a masculine presenting woman, sat there in the church and was who I was doing what I did, um, that there was some child or even some adult, right? Somebody out, somebody out in the universe who may have felt like that, that being queer, being gay, being same gender, loving, being lesbian, whatever, that that thing that is different from being a white heterosexual male, um, that that thing meant that they were not entitled to, meant that they didn't have permission to, meant that they couldn't do, fill in the blank. And, and that if I don't do anything else in my life, let me be let me be an example of what can be. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I know that that was a deeply personal question and really appreciate the, the share. So your musical, This One Girl Story, was inspired by the life of Sakia Gunn, mm-hmm. a 15-year-old Black lesbian who was murdered in Newark, New Jersey in 2003. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you combine you know, how your activism work with your musical theater work? So I, I think specifically, as a great question, I think specifically um, in terms of this one girl's story. So around the same time that Sakia was killed, um, Matthew Shepard was killed. And if you did just a simple Google search of their names, the number of hits, the number of, of stories um, associated with Matthew Shepard is so much greater than, uh, than those associated with Sakia Gunn. Um, and there was something, and there was something about that. Um, mm-hmm. There, there is something about that. That's really, that that's really significant. Um, there's kind of a, 
there was there was there was almost more sympathy, if you will, for for him, and more of a sense of it's so tragic that his life was cut short in a way that the tragedy that also because it was a tragedy that his life was cut short in the way that also um that Sakia's life was cut short is is also tragic but it didn't but it wasn't treated the same way right um in the same way that in 2021 we hear about um you know we're talking about George Floyd and we're talking about um uh Micaiah Bryant um uh, a young woman who uh, lost her life after an encounter with with law enforcement, right? Um, there is this there is there is this way of telling stories of certain people that's very different from telling the stories of other people. So when Bill Wright and I um, created this one girl's story, what we wanted to do was not tell per se how she lost her life, right? Or to reduce her down to her death. But also like, what was that night like? What was, what were her friendships like? What, what, what perhaps were they like? Um, you know, there's something, there's, there's something about when you're getting ready to go out there's this whole celebration that happens before the celebration. So you are, you know, you're thinking about that outfit that you want to wear. You maybe you're playing a little music to set the, to set the mood to uh, before you go out. Like what, what is, what is that? Right. What do we know about that? And what kind of justice are we going to see her killer receive, right? So we looked at so we looked at those things in the context of the piece, which we thought was really, really important. Um, that no one should ever be reduced to one particular thing in their lives if that thing is the one thing that they would be noted for. Um, especially when it comes to someone who has lost their life. Like what, what else could we be talking about with them had they not died? What could Sakia have grown up to be? And, um, and so it was important. So, so it was important for us to, to tell her story. Um, and it also was important for us to tell her story in a way that she would have told um, her story. So, uh, a song that would have sounded, so a song that would have fit into, um, a Sondheim piece or in a Pasek and Paul piece, for example, um, or, or, uh, a Tom Kitt piece would not, would not have worked. Right. But, but something, but something that came out of the R&B world, something that came out of hip hop, something that came out of dance hall, um, would have, would have worked in her world. And so it was important for us to, um, it was important for us to tell the story about this young woman who was very much like Sakia, um, in a way that, 
that would have been authentic to her and to who she was. And there's a great YouTube video of someone from Middle Church singing a song from the show that uh, we will link to in the show notes for sure. Great. So we wanted to jump over to a section that we call Queering the Canon. And we talked a lot today about not just musical theater canon, but also American songbook canon. So feel free to to go into that realm for this question, too. But is there a musical or a song that you would like to take and queer? Um, so I often I, I often find that when that when mainstream whatever um talks about uh, queer or same gender loving people, they always jump to the bedroom. And so our lives are so much more than that. And so if I, if I go back to like the whole thing that, that I talked about with the song, The Very Thought of You, and how that's a love song and how beautiful uh, a, a song that is to talk about how deeply um, how deep your affection for somebody goes. I think about something like West Side Story, and then I and I wonder if um, if they were two men or or two women um, who who loved each other, and the thing that and the and the thing that pulled them apart, right? Which is the Romeo and Juliet story, and the thing that pulled them apart was about their families. And just that their families came from different backgrounds, not that not not that it was about um, them both being two two men or two women, right? The ordinariness of they just want to be able to love each other. It's kind of, um, you know, I, I I feel like there would probably be some hints of uh, this movie. The incredible adventure of two girls in love. I'm probably messing up that title, but that was a little movie. <laughs> that was a little lesbian love story from back in the early nineties. Um, you know, I think about, I think about stories, I think about stories like that. So I would, so I would love to see West Side Story that way. Um, you know, I, I would, gosh, what other, what other musicals would I, would I love to see? I, I just, I just want to see the ordinariness, um, you know, not boring when I say ordinary, but the ordinary <laughs> everyday, like the bills have to be paid. Did you remember right. to buy cat food? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, can I, can I borrow your Metro card because I forgot to put money on yeah. mine <laughs> kind of everyday mundane, super ordinary things that, that, um, you know, couples do. I just want to see stories like stories like that that don't turn into this whole sensational thing because because there are two women in love or there are two men in love. Like I just I just want to see I just want to see that. Um, and when I see it, I want to see some black and brown people. Absolutely. <laughs> and and I want to see if if we're if if we're seeing two men, I want I want. I want it to be okay that either they're both masculine or both um, on the feminine side of the spectrum or that one is on the masculine side of the spectrum and one is on the feminine side of the spectrum and the same thing for, um, for two women. Like they don't all have to be super pretty and su- they don't have, both have to be <laughs> super pretty and super made up and both in high heels. Definitely. Right? And yeah. let it be okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd like to be okay that we see that. <laughs> right. <laughs> It would be so interesting to see West Side Story with uh, thinking about like the gender dynamics within the families. Like, what would it be like if Tony was a woman and all the Jets are like coming to her and being like, oh, we need you back in the gang because you're like such a good fighter. Right. 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 Does does, does anybody remember anybody? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. You know, like, we. Like, okay, I, I see it's you, anybody. Yeah. Right. I see you, anybody's. You, you were there. Now, now let's see what's really up. Let, let's see what's really good, anybody's. What's really good? What's really good? And then why would they let, like, a woman Tony in the gang, but not anybody's? You yes, know? exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, anybody's. Now, now anybody's could have been like, you You all go ahead and, and have that fight, and I'll, I'll just catch up and see you all later. Like, that wasn't, that wasn't her thing. Her thing was like, yeah, I want to go in and shut the blood, get, you know, kill the PRs. Like, 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 she was there. With, yeah. She was there with that. So, you know. People forget yeah. that character. That character gets forgotten often. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Like, let's give anybody some shine. Maybe that's the thing to write. Maybe, maybe the, maybe the story, maybe the story to write, um, is it, you know, puts anybody's a little further in the, it makes, oh my gosh, makes anybody's a, uh, a thing. Okay. I think I might have to, that might be my, that might be my summer. That's going to be my summer project. Yes, I'm say it, nobody else is gonna do it. <laughs> yeah, we won't tell anyone. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Um, and then thinking outside of theater uh, for your queer culture rec, you've already mentioned a lot of this, but um, what would be your queer culture indulgence outside of theater? My queer culture indulgence outside of theater. Um, so this is, this is not, this, this is not queer, but it's a wonderful thing that has, that welcomes queer energy. So there's a, so there's a party that happens, um, in Fort Green Park, or it used to, it uh, happens in Fort Green Park called Soul Summit. And Soul Summit is a celebration of house music. Now, house music, um, house music is the parent of techno. And I say that because techno is not house music, nor is house music techno. It has a lot of electronic elements to it, but the BPMs, the beats per minute, the speed, right, is totally different. But, um, but, Soul Summit, which is this beautiful, glorious party that happens on Sunday afternoon, starts Sunday afternoon and goes into the evening in the park. It's outside. There are hundreds of people. There are these giant speakers. Sometimes there are people who bring um, African uh, percussion and they play and, and everybody is dancing with everybody. The vibe is beautiful and, and, and loving. Everybody is there for the love of the music and the culture around it. And you just, you come to dance. If you bring your kids, your kids are going to be safe. Um, it, you know, if you, if you are a queer couple, you can dance with each other and you're not harassed. Um, it is, it is just this, this, this expression of joy and joyful abandon and unity and life and celebration um 
and and I have never experienced anything like Soul Summit. Um, and it's free. Awesome. And it's free. That's the that's the other thing. Like <laughs> like there is such a commodification of so many things. Like this particular thing, uh, we don't have enough time for me to talk about the cannabis industry, right? Like there's that whole thing. Um, but, but this, 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 but soul summit is just incredible. And when you're there, you don't have to, you don't have to be great at anything. You don't have to be a great dancer. You don't have to, like, if all you can do is rock from side to side, if all, if you're sitting in your wheelchair and all you can do is is move your head from side to side or maybe turn your chair from from side to side you are you are you are part of that community and everybody is community in in this time at this thing in this place outside under the canopy of the sky it's amazing especially like during quarantine times that just sounds so magical and yeah. important yeah like non-existent yeah. yes yes absolutely <laughs> a fantasy world right yeah. yes but yes to live outdoor music togetherness that that sounds amazing. oh yeah oh so yeah oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> and we also have a section called queer gives where we like to spotlight a charity or an organization in the queer community uh to give our listeners information on how they can support and give back um if you have one right now you can you can hit us with it um wow i i i actually uh i mean there there are small grassroots organizations that have popped up um during quarantine time that are doing work with um with the the black trans community here in in new york um uh, you know, I think of an activist like Ms. June, who is a Black trans woman who um, really started organizing, especially around um, getting health care, improving health care for trans people, um, especially for trans people of color, after she talked about her experience of having COVID and being in the hospital and not and and uh, how she had to how hard she had to work to get doctors to see her, treat her and hospitalize her, which she needed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but she was not getting the kind of attention that, that, that she needed to, to get because she was black, because she was trans. Um, and also because she, she, um, she presented at a, a New York City hospital um, that, that deals with people who are not rich. Mm-hmm. Right. And and how um, and the inequities that that all of those all of those things um, bring up. So. Um, so Ms. June's organization, whose name I will I will try to find, um, but also the Audrey Lord Project that for many years has worked to um, uh, to provide social services to LGBT folks of, of color. Um, it's really important work that, that they are, that they are doing. Great. And we'll link to that in our show notes so people can find out more. Thank you. And lastly, how can people uh, find you online and follow your work? Uh, so I'm pretty searchable. 
uh, <laughs> but also my socials, uh, McFreeney Music, M-C-C-F-R-E-E-N-E-Y Music. You can find me. You can find me that way too. Thank you so much. This was such an amazing conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Dion. This was great. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us and share us with your friends. We'd love to hear from you if you have any queer culture recommendations or other ideas about how to queer the canon. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 845-445-9251 or email us at thesisonjoan at gmail.com. And you can follow us on social. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Thesis on Joan. Until next time, keep it queer. Not that it'd be that hard for y'all to do. (laughs) And then I remember one, I don't remember which show it was, but I saw the like fattest raccoon I've ever seen. And that was definitely worth it. I saw a raccoon during King Lear and it was definitely the highlight. I should have packed, packed it up after that guy came out. But yep. yeah. uh, and those seats are not comfortable. But anyway, that's no. enough for bashing the dog. <laughs> hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now. And get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org. Because only together we rise. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.